Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, titled Treatment Options in Non-Type 2 Asthma, is brought to you by CHEST. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline and an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's your host, Dr. Sandhya Kurana, Professor of Medicine at the University of Rochester and Director of the Mary Park Center for Asthma, Allergy, and Pulmonary Care. Among the approximately 300 million people who are affected by asthma worldwide, various phenotypes exist that require an individualized approach to treatment. Today, we'll be exploring one of the particularly challenging phenotypes of non-type 2 asthma and learn more about how we can tailor our management approach for these patients. This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Sandhya Kurana. Joining me to discuss treatment options for non-type 2 asthma is Dr. Fernando Hoagland, Professor of Medicine, Pulmonary Sciences, and Critical Care, as well as Director of the Asthma Clinical and Research Programs at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Dr. Holguin, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Corona. I appreciate the invitation. Delighted to be here. So, Fernando, to start off, can you give us a brief overview of what non-type 2 asthma is? Sure. The way I think about non-type 2 asthma is that it's a very common phenotype. You know, roughly about half of the patients that you will see in the clinic are not going to have some of the typical biomarkers that we normally think are associated with type 2 asthma, which are higher levels of nitric oxide, elevated peripheral blood eosinophils, or sputum eosinophils, and perhaps to a less extent, higher IgE levels. So these patients are common. They often don't respond to inhaled corticosteroids as patients with more predominant type 2 asthma do. And so they're challenging to manage from a clinical perspective. I think we all know when we see type 2 asthma, you know, we were able to recognize it, but sometimes I feel non-type 2 asthma really is a diagnosis of exclusion where you ruled out some of the type 2 characteristics. So how do you define or how do you try to identify non-type 2 asthma in your practice? That's a very good question. It's a challenging paradigm because in fact, we are defining a phenotype by something that they don't have and the biomarkers may not tell the whole story. There may be some some degree of type 2 inflammation, but we were not able to detect it with the things that we have on hand clinically. So I normally think about these patients as those that when you see them, they don't have any of the typical biomarkers that I just mentioned briefly that are elevated. But one needs to be careful that you are not confounding issues that relate to prior medication use because many of these patients, for example, have been on systemic corticosteroids and other medications that could perhaps influence how you perceive them to be. So once I, I'm sure that those patients don't have any evidence of type 2 biomarkers, I tend to think about them as, as having a non-predominant type 2 asthma and potentially think about different types of treatment alternatives for them. Dr. Holguin, thank you so much for giving us some background to the non-type 2 asthma. And I know that we understand the mechanisms in play in type 2 high asthma quite well, but what, what are what's the current understanding of the pathobiology of mechanisms underlying non-type 2 asthma? Yes, that's a a really interesting question. You know, we have to first understand that subjects or patients with non-type 2 asthma really comprise a very heterogeneous group of patients that may have very different mechanisms or pathways 
that eventually lead to airway injury, inflammation, or airway dysfunction. And those can really come from a long-standing exposure to, you know, to pollutant, to, to viruses, um, to inhalation of other products, or, or to exposure of endogenous metabolic disturbances that eventually lead to some of these pathways to become more activated. Some of these patients may have from um, epithelial gene expression studies, greater activity of Th1-related inflammation, such as all you know, different types of interferon, gamma responses, Th17 responses have also been involved as well as IL-6 levels, particularly in some of these asthmatics. But again, this is a highly oversimplification of a much more complex immune response in these patients. So it sounds like there's multiple endotypes and subphenotypes within this broad bucket that we're calling non-type 2 asthma. Would, would you agree, Fernando? What are the different subphenotypes that you usually think about when you're considering this type of asthma? That's a good question, Sandy. So... We normally think about type 2 asthma as those with more allergic early onset disease and perhaps those a little bit later on have predominant severe eosinophilic asthma. But non-type 2 asthma, as you mentioned, is this sort of black box that encompasses many different phenotypes. So there we have, for example, related to obesity, particularly late onset in females. There are patients there that have potential for neutrophilic predominant airway inflammation that lack type 2 biomarkers. And there are also patients in whom their disease appears to predominantly affect airway smooth muscle and they have very little inflammation. And so many of these patients can present later on fixed airway obstruction. Although there are many different phenotypes compared to type 2 asthma, some of these patients may have perhaps less impaired lung function. They certainly have perhaps a lower degree of bronchodilator responsiveness, but they're less responsive to inhaled corticosteroids. For those just joining us, this is CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Sandhya Karana, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Fernando Hoagland about non-type 2 asthma. So Dr. Hoagland, uh, let's dive a little bit deeper and talk more management. I know there are a lot of challenges in management of non-type 2 asthma, and we're still ways away from targeted therapy. And you'd mentioned there are no specific biomarkers that have been identified, but are there any that are under study or in research that we might expect to see in the future? Well, as you mentioned, Sandy, I mean, there's really no adequate treatment for these patients. When you're dealing with a patient with non-type 2 asthma, one of the things you normally or commonly see is that these patients have been treated with lots of steroids and still are very symptomatic. So we definitely must look for other potential avenues of treatment particularly given the potential risk that steroids may at some level make things worse for some of these patients. There are different treatments that either could be specific or that function equally well in patients with type 2 and non-type 2 asthma. So, for example, some of the inhaled medications like anticholinergic drugs or muscarinic antagonists, like teotropium, for example, those drugs can be adequate bronchodilators that can work on both types of type 2 and non-type 2. There was a recent study published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Asmanin called the CNI study that evaluated response of teotropium based on sputum levels and found that in naive patients to inhale corticosteroids with mild persistent asthma, those that had no eosinophils ended up responding better to teotropium as an entry drug. So I think we need to look at our patients and try to identify that lack of non t biomarkers to identify better treatments for them. So teotropium is one. Another one that could potentially work for patients to reduce the frequency of exacerbations is, is macrolides, like acithromycin. 
Earlier studies had shown that patients with non-eosinophilic disease would preferentially respond better, but subsequent studies and large randomized control studies have shown that both eosinophil and non-eosinophil asthma phenotypes can respond to macrolides and you can have as much as 20 to 25% reduction in exacerbation. So those are some of the drugs that are available to clinicians that they can potentially use on some of these patients. There's a new drug that's likely moving through phase three that's called the anti-TSLP or tepeluzumab, which is a monoclonal antibody that targets cytokine-derived lymphopoietin, which sits high at the chain of the inflammatory response. And the phase two studies show that you know, this monoclonal antibody can potentially reduce uh, the frequency of exacerbations and improve health on people regardless or whether they have type 2 biomarkers or not. So, so those are some of the treatments that I think are going to become available. And there's certainly a host of other potential metabolic drugs that act through different pathways that could affect airway function as well. Great. Thank you. So from what I'm hearing, if somebody has neutrophilic asthma or frequent exacerbations, then macrolite uh, could be an option. If somebody has airflow limitation and non-eosinophilic asthma, long-acting muscarinic or anticholinergic would be an option. Do you feel there's a role for thermoplasty or do you ever consider that in your patients? Thermoplasty, personally, I think we're still learning a lot of how this innovation works. The current guidelines suggest that these approach should be limited to centers that have expertise and registry, but certainly I think it's an option to patients that lack any type of type 2 biomarkers and, and have been unresponsive to therapy. But like anything else, Andy, I think you have to try to match as best as possible, which is the right patient for the right treatment. So I, I think that there's a subset of people from whom bronchial thermoplasty could be useful. We may not know exactly the correct sort of definition as to who is that patient population, but there are certainly groups that could benefit from it. Thank you, Fernando, for that information. And last but not least, I know that metabolic dysfunction and obesity in asthma is an area of special interest to you. And I was wondering what your thoughts were, if you could share some pearls on how we could manage obesity-associated asthma. Thanks, Andy. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, since it really relates to work that we've been doing here for some time. It's important to remember that in patients with asthma and obesity, it's not only about the weight. There are factors such as metabolic syndrome and even diabetes or proglycemic control that have been independently of BMI implicated in their weight dysfunction. Our group has been very interested in understanding how obesity and metabolic disruptions impair the production of endogenous bronchodilators that are derived from nitric oxide in the airways. And we've shown that in patients with obesity, particularly those with late onset disease, they have less nitric oxide and they might produce less of some of these important bronchodilators that maintain normal bronchial motor tone, if you will. It's interesting that patients with obesity and asthma also have very significant abnormalities in the mitochondria function and regulation in the airway epithelium. And so we don't know yet what the clinical implications of having abnormal mitochondria, but we do know, in fact, that the metabolism of the airway in these patients is very different than those that are lean. And so all these factors could either make the patients more symptomatic by being related to abnormal airway function or potentially could impair the response to drugs such as immunocorticosteroids and others. In that regard, I think, while there's no specific treatment for obesity-related asthma, you know, weight loss has been shown to improve outcomes in some patients. And so that should always be uh, recommended to patients. There are a number of 
potential interventions to improve the health of subjects with obesity and asthma that have not yet made it into the clinical realm things or they haven't been tested sufficiently enough. One of them is L-citrulline, which my group has been working on with the idea to increase nitric oxide in the airways and increase the production of some of these endogenous bronchodilators. There are other drugs that are currently being investigated through precise NIH network like anti-IL-6. And some patients with increased BMI have higher levels of the cytokine and so potentially could benefit to a greater extent than patients who are leaner. So I think, you know, these are some examples of treatments that are being explored. There are other trials that are being investigated with MitoQ, for example, to try to improve mitochondrial function. I think in the next several years, we will see a number of drugs that might be available specifically to improve the, the respiratory health of those that, that experience obesity and, and asthma. And lastly, uh, Dr. Holguin, um, what are uh, some of the unmet needs and what uh, research is currently being done that uh, we can look forward to? Yes. So I think one of the unmet needs is to recognize that uh, patients with non two asthma are not a unique group of patients. They don't have one disease, but they have a multitude of different diseases. So we need to really work hard on identifying biomarkers that gives us some idea about the underlying mechanisms of disease or that may potentially give us more information about what is the best drug to treat some of these patients. There are some simple things that I think could begin to be used more frequently and will make a big difference is trying to understand, for example, some of the demographic characteristics of the patient, like, you know, what is the age of asthma onset on a patient can give a lot of information regarding whether somebody may have a a more allergic type 2 underlying disease or somebody who developed asthma in their late 40s, perhaps has a completely different and disease phenotype. And so these things, I think, in the clinic can help us start to think about what is the initial treatment approach to some of these patients, particularly the ones that are more complicated or have not responded to standard therapy. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Fernando. These are really some insightful perspectives that you gave us today and we need to consider as we come to the end of today's program. And I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Fernando Holguin, for speaking with us about non-type 2 asthma. Dr. Holguin, it was a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sandy. A pleasure so mine. This activity was part of a series provided in partnership with CHEST, This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline and an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. To receive your free CME credit or to view other activities in this series, go to ReachMD.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.